Uh, welcome everybody uh, to the, this lecture in the series of medical detectives. Uh, I'm Richard Knight, I'm one of the uh, neurologists in the department. This is a, a series of lectures, as some of you may know, uh, which try to illustrate how methods that might be used by detectives, for example, uh, can be useful in clinical practice and, of course, medical research. And this really follows on from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who many of you may know was uh, a student here, and he based his character Sherlock Holmes uh, on his teachers, particularly one uh, Dr. Bell. So tonight's topic uh, is neurodegeneration, and uh, this is uh, a name given to a set of diseases uh, of the nervous system uh, of rather obscure cause, but very common. Uh, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, uh, um, motor neuron disease. These are diseases which uh, many of you may have met in your personal life in friends or families, and these are diseases which certainly some of us, including me, uh, will develop at some stage uh, in our lives. So they're very important diseases. Uh, Siddhartha Chandran is going to give the lecture tonight, uh, is a clinical academic. He therefore uses these kind of detective skills to pick up clues for diagnosing what's wrong with patients, but also in the study of those illnesses so that we can understand them better. And his principal interest, as far as I understand it, is in developing treatments for these diseases. So along with neurodegeneration, we have the concept of neuroregeneration. So with that, I'll introduce Siddhartha, whose title you see before you, uh, Reasoning Backwards to Go Forwards, uh, Solving the Puzzle of Neurodegeneration. Siddhartha. Thanks very much, Richard. Thanks again, Richard. Um, uh, good evening, and welcome to this, the fourth and last, I think, Jane, of the uh, lecture series in the Medical Detective series. It's uh, terrific to see so many people here. Um, many familiar faces, hello Kiki Donald, and others. But it's also particularly gratifying to see some younger faces. The mature faces are always very welcome. Um, because hopefully some of you, the younger crowd for sure, maybe by this lecture series, uh, might be inspired to contemplate a career in medical research. So the title of my lecture is Reasoning Backwards to Go forward, solving the puzzle of neurodegeneration. Um, I apologize a little bit because it's a, it's a slightly forced, clumsy syntax, I accept that, almost as if John Prescott might have written it. But what I was trying to do with this, and I'll try and do in the next 45, 50 minutes or so, was try and convey to you a sense of some of the work that I'm involved with, working as part of a much bigger collaboration with colleagues here and elsewhere, in what I think is one of the great emerging medical disciplines of our time, which is regenerative neurology, which is, as Richard has said, is repairing the damaged brain. And it would seem to me, and, and this is the point I was trying to get across, that much of Conan Doyle's writings around Sherlock Holmes provides the logic, if you like, and certainly the underpinning of the principles of evidence-based scientific inquiry. So indeed, I will use various quotes of Conan Doyle to signpost this particular talk. I must also emphasize at the beginning that unlike many crime thrillers, this isn't a complete story. There's not a final ending. In fact, this is a story that's half told, but hopefully somebody here even might do something special, be inspired, 
and come back one day and tell the full story and close the deal. So I'll begin with this first slide. And um, this gentleman here is not Conan Doyle, and he's not Watson. I don't know if anybody here recognizes him, but this chap's called Joseph Bell. So Joseph Bell, like Conan Doyle, would have, I imagine, stood here. He, he was a teacher and surgeon, uh, an alumnus of this university, and almost certainly, I would have thought, would have taught her. And it's clear that he was part of the inspiration to Conan Doyle around Sherlock Holmes. And that quote is taken from Conan Doyle writing back to Joseph Bell and saying this. And many people apparently, and I, I was ignorant of all this until this weekend when I started scrambling around looking for um, a structure to this talk, uh, was um, Joseph Bell is apparently this, you know, he's one of the fathers, if you like, of forensic science. So a very great man in his own right, but clearly a man who has inspired Conan Doyle. And it, it really begins this principle that Rich has already alluded to of logic, clarity of thinking, the importance of observation, deduction, and by implication, inductive reasoning. These and others are the guiding principles of proper clinical scientific research. So what is the grand challenge uh, that faces the research community? Well, it's a very major challenge indeed, um, are the neurodegenerative disorders. And again, Richard has mentioned this. I could have listed many, but these four will do. Um, the numbers are colossal. In the UK alone, 900,000 is probably a conservative estimate. But those four diseases, and indeed there are others that aren't on that list, they share many features. Most of them are sad. I mean, apart from the impact on the individual, there's obviously a knock-on to the family and to society. And this can be monetized, but beyond the money, the real cost, which is incalculable, is the sort of human cost. And it, these are devastating diseases. Aside from that, what they also share is that these are progressive disorders, by and large. They're incurable, without exception, and sadly, they're devastating and disabling. All of them, except multiple sclerosis, also are age-related. That is, the older you get, hence Richard's comment, the more likely you're going to get it. Now, society as a whole is living longer, and often that's not because of the sort of doctor's well, it is in part because of doctors, I think. But it's really public health advances, so people are living longer. And it's illustrated on this graph. And you can see here that the numbers rise very steeply after a threshold of about 65, 70. And roughly every five years after that point, Alzheimer's, as a sort of exemplar of these diseases, doubles. So, you know, you don't need to be a mathematician to work out this is a big problem and it's getting bigger. And then you can do the extrapolation and the arithmetic to take this onto a global level and the numbers are millions and millions of people with these disorders. So that's the problem. What is needed? Again, you don't need Einsteinian logic uh, to know what's needed. It's, it's simple. It's what we all want if we have a, a disease. You want treatments and the treatments come in different types. But this is a very major challenge, and it's probably best to think of this in incremental steps. And the steps would be treatments that might slow disease down. So if these are neurodegenerative diseases, those would be called neuroprotective treatments. But clearly, if you could stop the disease, that would be terrific. And the home run would be to be able to slow, stop, and then actually 
give back what's lost, reverse or repair, restore lost function. That, that's just saying it, it sounds like a big ask. It's a massive ask. Um, but, you know, these things can be possible. So how might you achieve that? Fundamentally, it's about discovery. It's about understanding what drives these diseases, why some get it, why others don't, why some get a particular flavour and the others get a different type. It's also important to emphasise that you don't need to understand everything to be able to make an impact on these diseases. You need to be able to understand enough and often the crucial, pivotal tipping point. You don't always need to line up the ducts. In fact, much of medicine, many of the therapies that we use today, came out of sharp observations, often good fortune, and people working out how the treatments work after you've already used them. So how do you do this? So this is the first, and these are just our quotes from Conan Doyle's writings, and it seems to me this is brilliant. How do you solve this problem? Well, the grand thing is to be able to reason backwards. And that's what we do as researchers. We, we reason backwards and we start at the beginning. And the beginning generally in medicine is pathology. You know, you go back to that, and I'll come back to that. But this principle of going backwards or reversal will recur throughout this talk. But before detailing what I mean by reasoning backwards, I just want to give you a very quick snapshot of the workings of the brain, for those of you who aren't neuroscientists. So what I'm going to tell you is what I learned at medical school in neuroscience. If you were at medical school with me, you'll realise this isn't going to take very long. Okay? It's, it's two slides, two minutes. Okay, the building blocks of the brain are basically, it's very simple, the brain, at, at the heart of the brain are the nerve cells, or the wiring. But those do not live in isolation. They're surrounded by cells which are called glia, from glue. And there are three types of these. One is called the oligodendrocyte. And this you might think of as insulation, albeit upmarket insulation. But it does so much more than that. There are two other glial cells. One's called astrocyte. That's the, this one, that's my cartoon representation of it. And the other is called the microglia, that's this one. And the microglia can be thought of as almost like the immune surveillance mobile police. They get excited, and when they get excited, they divide and they run around, which is a bit like the police, isn't it? And then all those cells, the nerves, the brains, they obviously connect to muscle. And when that all works, and that's what's happening to most of us at any given time, it all works beautifully. The brain at its best is essentially a network of electrical circuitry. It's a sort of symphony of orchestrated electrical activity. And when that electrical activity that works through networks works, that is what underpins our ability to think, to emote, to feel, to move, to remember, and so on. But clearly each of those units that go to make up the circuit which in health do all of that can go wrong. The nerves could go wrong, the other cells can go wrong. And even one of the support cells, and it's more than support glial cells, if they go wrong, could they have a knock-on consequence to the nerves going wrong? And the answer is yes. And we can consider that by thinking about this disease, Parkinson's disease. So the chap here is James Parkinson, an East London physician um, who wrote a very famous essay called An Essay on Shaking Palsy. And essentially, he described the cardinal features of the disease that now carries his name, Parkinson's disease. Those of you who, have, who are either medical students or have some insight into Parkinson's will, will recognize these. The triad of features that he highlighted, which hasn't changed, is tremor, shaking, 
rigidity, stiffness, and slowness of movement. Medical students these days are taught that it's a quartet. There's a fourth thing also, which is problems with balance um, and postural reflexes. But that triad is essentially true. The numbers, again, in the UK, that's an estimate, but it's a big problem. Now, if we were to consider Parkinson's disease as a crime, um, given that this is the, the medical detective series, and every crime has a scene. So you can see I've been working very hard on this since the weekend, <laughs> trying to make this Sherlock Holmes. So the scene of the crime is the brain, clearly, but it's not any part of the brain, it's the midbrain, which is roughly here, if you take a cross-section, and that's what you can see here. And within that midbrain, just like in most crimes, or certainly murders, there's a death. And it's not any death, cells die, not any cells, nerves die, not any nerves. It sounds like an M&S advert, doesn't it? Right? <laughs> but it's a particular sort of nerve cell that dies. And it's a nerve cell that's called a dopaminergic cell because it makes this chemical called dopamine, and it's pigmented, it's dark. So this is health. Does that arrow show? Yeah. So this is health, pigmented, and in patients with Parkinson's disease, they lose that particular nerve cell. And that's my cartoon representation. So we can think about this as the consequence of loss of one cell type in one part of the brain. So this is another disease, motor neuron disease. And um, some of you, particularly the folks from North America, will recognize this chap. His name's Lou Gehrig. And in the States, actually, it's still called Lou Gehrig disease by many people. Very famous baseball player who died of this disease in his prime. Terrible disease. Um, it's a relentlessly progressive disease which results in muscle wasting. Because, sadly, people die from this disease or can die um, in a, over a comparatively short time, you can see the median survival, roughly 40 months, the actual numbers at any given time may not be as high as people might think. But if you do the arithmetic, the total burden of this disease is indeed very high. So if we could get people to live longer, that would become more obvious. So again, the same principle, where's the crime, what's the scene? Now, this is a disease that affects just one particular type of cell by and large. And those are the motor nerve cells. And the motor nerve cells live in two places, in the brain, in particular parts of the brain. And then they run down and they uh, connect at a junction, if you like, with motor nerve cells in the spinal cord. And what the other name for this disease, apart from Lou Gehrig disease or motor neuron disease, is amyotrophic, A for loss, myo for muscle, trophic for support, lateral, because it is these lateral columns that are white, are affected, because that's where the motor tracts run in the spinal cord, the lateral, and they're sclerosed, which is meaning scar. So amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So those of you who are medical students, if you just remember that, you can write an essay and get away with it. The problem here, then, is the motor nerve, but the motor nerve connect at a junction with muscle. And so, by and large, people have tended to think about it as a problem of the nerve, motor nerve, and muscle. Now, here's the third of the diseases I was going to touch on, and this you'll recognize as Jacqueline Dupre. And I use this for two reasons, because it highlights that this disease actually doesn't just affect older people, it affects younger people. She, for those of you who don't know, was a very famous cellist who died in her prime. So it affects younger people, but it also has a bias towards females. So it's probably two to three to one. 
and she's used a lot in fundraising. Again, very big problem, probably 100,000 people affected. So you know the drill, scene of the crime, it's the brain, the type of crime here is, this is the green arrow, and here, and you can see on this cartoon, it was believed that the major problem here is you lose the insulation. So if you lose the insulation, which is red, you've got a naked per, uh, form of axon or nerve, which is vulnerable. And when you lose the insulation, if you stain for it on a brain, it looks white instead of blue. Okay? It's worth, at this point, just diverting for a moment, because this is a very Scottish disease. As you'll see this quote, as you're looking um, on, to your right, your left even, and this quote of J.K. Rowling. Um, clearly she has a way with words, we know that, um, but she got it right here as well. And this was a press release when she gave a fantastically generous gift to the university um, to establish a clinic, which is the Anne Rowling Clinic, named after her mother. Her mother sadly died of this disease, but she also said, and she's right, it's a very Scottish disease. It is a very Scottish disease because if you look then at the map of UK, the numbers in red are the prevalence numbers. So around London, southeast, it's about 110, 120 per 100,000 have MS. Move up north, so when I was in Cambridge and London, moving up north was going beyond Watford. But now that I'm here, you know, you say moving up north, you're thinking Aberdeen and stuff. But let's just say, if you just move up to Edinburgh, the number's already about 160, 170 per 100,000. And you go further north to Orkneys, it's 200 plus. So it's a really sharp north-south gradient. We don't fully understand why, and we could perhaps speculate on that if there's time at the end. And that's what she captured. So, so far, it's been a pretty miserable tale. I've told you there's a lot of it about. They're terrible, it's incurable, it's progressive. It's, it's more of it because people are living longer. Can it get worse? It can. I don't want this to be a complete history lesson and I don't want to sort of bombard you with these rather grim looking late 19th century polymaths, um, who were, but very wise people, some of them. So this chap is called Charcot. Charcot, very famous French neuroscientist, neurologist, pathologist, uh, probably considers the father of modern neurology. Um, the point about this is he was an astute observer and goes back to the Holmes business, you know, he didn't just see, he also observed and he thought. And so when he was thinking and looking at samples of patients with multiple sclerosis, and it was him who first coined the French equivalent of multiple sclerosis, for those of you who are French scholars, I'm sure there are some here, you will be able to understand, and I've tried to highlight it in red, that apart from observing that there was a problem with the glare, the glue, the insulation, he's already, this is the 19th century, he's already got insight that there's a problem with the axons, the nerves, the cylinders. And in the softer pale red, he's even got the wit, the humility and insight to say, these are only his observations and he can't prove it, but that's what he reckons. Guess what, he was absolutely spot on. So patients with this disease, most of these patients with these disease have this natural history. So this baseline along here is normal. When you get an attack, you go up here. So a lot of blue is bad news, and then you recover. So that's what happens early in disease for 
probably 85% of patients with MS, and that's called relapse-remitting disease. And the underlying pathology or the pathological substrate of that is problem with the myelin. And that's with these immune cells getting overexcited. But then over time, sadly, the vast majority of those patients will continue to accumulate disability and they progress. So that's this big block of blue and that's called progressive disease. And the reason you see somebody in a wheelchair with MS is not because they've lost insulation per se, but it's rather because they've lost the nerves. So in other words, it also has a very strongly neurodegenerative component. So nerves do indeed die, just as Mr. Sharko, I'm sure Professor Sharko, observed. So very, very astute. And it took about 80 to 100 years for that to absolutely be understood and nailed. So again, you know, there's often not nothing new in, in life. It's only the history you never learn. So let's go back further in history. So those of you who are French scholars, but also classical scholars will recognize this. So this is from Greek mythology and fable. And so this is the tale or the myth of Prometheus, which literally means foresight. Now Prometheus was a titan and who fell out with Zeus. And um, more than fell out, he was pretty severely punished. And his punishment, for those of you who don't know, was to be chained to a rock and to have to suffer a, this eagle coming and eating his liver. That's pretty rough. Okay. But what was really rough and the real cruelty of the punishment is this was a punishment to be endured every day. Because the eagle would clear off, but the liver would repair itself, it would regenerate. Eagle would turn up the next morning. It's terrible. So, but the point in this is that whoever wrote this or came up with this, the Greeks, they had the wit and the insight to think about regeneration, organ regeneration, organ replacement, renewal. Fantastic. I don't think they would have known that. They also had the foresight to target the liver, because if any organ is a classical prototypic regenerative organ, it's the liver. So they were spot on. So in many ways, this mythology predicts and anticipates today's thinking around stem cells. The idea of regeneration, renewal, replacement. That's all good and well if I was a liver doctor, but I'm not. You know, I'm a neurologist. So the question is, that's great the liver regenerates, so I can go to a doctor's pub, have a few, damage a few liver cells, it will be sorted the next morning, because they'll replace. The question is, does the brain regenerate? And we're back to our late 19th century's rather stern, austere-looking chaps. So this guy is Kihal, won a Nobel Prize, father of neuroscience. He got most things right, but thankfully not everything. So he, and this is a direct quote um, from 1928, said, and if you read this, um, that in the brain, everything is fixed, ended, immutable. In other words, won't change, cannot regenerate, and it may die. So in other words, what you're born with is, is as good as it's going to get. If you lose anything, it's not coming back. So, so that's underpinned a lot of thinking about the brain disorders, that the brain doesn't have the capacity to regenerate or repair. Contrast that to the liver, the skin, the gut, the blood. Now is that indeed true? 
So this is one of the Conan Doyle or Sherlock Holmes quotes. And I, in fact, I can use all of these now that I've learnt them <laughs> in the lab, because every one of these quotes is what you want students, postdocs, researchers to do. It is absolutely spot on. So, when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So this is the idea of doing experiments unbiased, without predict you might have a prediction, you might have a testable hypothesis, but you just, the data is the data. So th here's a fantastic experiment, which a group of researchers did. The, the lead author is a chap called Ericsson, the senior author, a chap called Gage. A really brilliant experiment, and it's an opportunist experiment. So roughly it goes like this. I think this was based in Sweden. There are some patients who had, this was in 98, had cancer, and one of the treatments, which isn't actually that common or used for this cancer, was to give a drug. And this drug happens to be taken up in any cell that divides, and then it sticks. So in other words, it will mark a dividing cell. Now sadly, because these people had cancer and they'd had this drug, they waited till they died, fairly soon, because of bad cancers, and then they went to the brain and asked, were there any cells in the brain that took up this label? And if they did, by implication, those cells must have been dividing at the time that drug was given. Does that make sense? Yeah? Now, you'll know that's going to happen in the liver and the blood. And you also know, actually, in the brain, it will occur in some of the cells. The glial cells can divide. The key was, could they get any of this label in nerve cells? And this is in humans and in adults. Now, we know from the literature that in animal studies that there are two parts of the brain that do have nerve cells that can divide because of stem cells. That's in the hippocampus, which is this structure and in the subventricular zone, which is the zone that lines the ventricles of our brain. So those, that's known in rats and other experimental systems. The question is, does that hold in humans? So this is the, an example of a section from the human brains of these, I think it was five people, and these arrows are the label. And so the label is clearly there. Well, that's fine, but it could be one of these glial cells. The question is, could it be the nerve cell? And I think this is just brilliant. It's such a simple experiment. And once you've thought of it, it's Mickey Mouse. Anybody could do it, if you could get hold of the sample. It's a couple of stains, a decent microscope. You could do this. And what you can see here in B is this arrow points to the green. They've just labeled, they've just marked it green. So that's the dividing cell. They've then stained it for a glial cell, and it doesn't co-stain. Stained it red for a nerve cell. And what you'll see is that there are nerve cells which are red, which contain the green, which means that the nerve cell in the adult human brain of this patient has divided. That's the most likely explanation. And then they've repeated that here. Brilliant. Um, in 1998, that study. And when I was looking this up, so this paper has been cited, and citations is a way that people use to measure the sometimes importance of research about 4,000 times, which is a lot. So then the question is, does regeneration actually occur in brain disease, in the context of brain disease? And the answer here actually is yes, and it was under our eyes if people were observing. So we're going back to the MS brain that I told you about before. So the arrows labeled green, these, is where the myelin, that glia, has gone. So it's gone from blue to white. But you can see, I hope, and I hope it projects well, 
Does it at the back? Yeah. The red arrows points to a pale blue. That would have once been white. It's now pale blue because new myelin has come down and been laid down, probably by stem cells. And this is what's happening at the microscopic level, and this is some of our own work. So here you're looking at a section of the brain, and the yellow arrows are pointing to the normal nerve cells, which can you see they're ringed by a dark blue. So the dark blue is the insulation, the myelin. When you lose the myelin in disease, you can see with these green arrows, can you see just the naked cylinder without any ring? And then you see here, the red, a very thin myelin, which is the new myelin that's been laid down. It's repair, it's regeneration, it's remyelination. I don't have time to give you the evidence, but those axons that have lost it, if they get it back, are then protected. They will survive. If they don't get it back, they'll die. So, remyelination is neuroprotective. There's a lot of evidence that the cells that are doing that remyelination, the new plaster, are derived from stem cells. So I've introduced stem cells. So how could you use stem cells to repair damage in disease? It's obviously a question that I'm asked a lot in clinic. There are two ways you can think about this, and they're not mutually exclusive. The first is the simplest way is make lots of these cells in a dish, and then it's the sort of SAS approach, parachute them in to do the job. And that's transplanting cells, so cell replacement. But another approach, given what I've told you, that there are already stem cells in the brain, maybe not so many, but there are some, and I'll tell you what stem cells can do. Why not generate drugs or molecular medicines which can get to those stem cells and frisk them up and get them to do the stuff, so promote the brain to repair itself. Intuitively, that makes more sense. A prediction, um, nobody will head, I think, to, to disprove me, but I'm pretty sure this will be true. Within 10 years, these therapies will start to emerge experimentally. 20 to 30 years, I'm pretty sure that lots of medicines will be targeting endogenous brain immature stem cells, and their job will be to try and frisk them, get them stirred up, and to go to sites of damage to try and repair. We'll see. So let me tell you something about stem cells. They're very simple. So stem cells, and the master stem cell here is this, we'll say that's the blue cell. And a stem cell can essentially do two things. It's typically unspecialized and doesn't have of itself tissue-specific structure or function. But it can make more of itself, so it can make more blue cells. But it can also give rise to specialized cells. So the nerve cell might be an example of a specialized cell the glial cell, a liver cell. And it's those twin properties of renewal, because if you can divide and divide and divide, as well as sometimes falling out of that and making specialized cells, so the ability to self-renew as well as specialization, if you can get that right, you've, you've got now the ability to generate unlimited numbers of defined human cells. And that's what potentially can unlock medical research medical discovery and potentially even medical treatments. Because you can now, if you're starting with a human stem cell, generate on demand unlimited numbers of a given nerve cell if you're a neurologist. So let me tell you something about the sort of types of human stem cells. So the mother of all human stem cells obviously is derived from the early embryo 
and that's this, that's the embryonic stem cell. This timeline simply indicates when it was first successfully isolated. That was by James Thompson, a, a veterinary pathologist in Madison, US in 1998. So still a young field. And then clearly during development, you get the fetus, you get the adult. And I've already told you in the adult, the liver red has its own stem cells. But the liver stem cells typically will only make up those cells that are necessary to make the liver. The brain stem cells will just make up those cells necessary to make the brain. Whereas this early embryonic stem cell will make up all the cells of the body. So that makes sense and that's exactly what happens. We'll come back to the timeline later. And this uh, picture here is simply to indicate scale. So that ball of cells, each one of those individual cells is a master stem cell, embryonic stem cell and it's sitting on the head of a pin. Just to give you a sense of the scale, so it's not very big. So I've told you that those master embryonic stem cells can make every cell type, and they can indeed do that. So here's an example. If you have them in a dish, and you're a bit careless, and just let them carry on, sometimes this will happen. So those embryonic stem cells are becoming specialized. And I don't know if anybody wants to hazard a guess as to what they become specialized into, but I'll tell you they've become heart cells, cardiac cells, which, and they're pulsating, which is what heart cells do. Amazing. So there's obviously a visual impact, hence I'm using it for this slide, but I want to use it to make another point. I mean, one is, it's t this is terrific if I was a cardiologist. But I've told you, I'm not a hepatologist, I'm not a cardiologist. And you wouldn't want this pumping away in your head, <laughs> would you? So it, it shows both the power of the system, but also the need to restrain and harness and direct it. It's all about location, location, location. <laughs> Quality TV, you can see I watch. The point is, you need to be able to control the specialization. And you need not just to make nerve cells, but you need to get the postcode right, because every nerve cell carries its own particular identity or mark. I've already told you that. The motor nerve cell is very different to the one that causes Parkinson's disease. So you need to be able to make, if you like, bespoke or tailored nerve cells. Can you do that? And can you make lots of them? And the short answer is yes, you can. And this is some work from the lab. When I was, this is actually from Cambridge when I was there. <coughs> um, but I use this slide just to illustrate the principle that, as you see here, these are those embryonic stem cells, the master stem cell over 16 days using essentially a form of scientific cookery, a very simple form of cookery, a bit expensive, but it's simple. Uh, you can shift those embryonic stem cells into nerve cells or nerve stem cells. The details don't matter. The major point about this figure is this graph because it gives you a sense of scale. One cell giving rise to two, two to four, and so on and so forth. So starting with a dish of these cells the size of the palm of my hand, um, as it happens, the guy who did this was Alexis, over 100 days, you can go from less than 10 to the 5 cells to 10 to the 10, 10 to the 11 cells. I mean, it is just a ridiculous scale. And this is not fancy science. I mean, the lab this was done in was no bigger, and Kate's here, I'm seeing, was no bigger than this area. Kate used to work with me in the Brain Repair Centre in Cambridge, and um, I've just met her after 10 years. She's now doing a PhD in chemistry, which is terrific. But anyway, Kate will remember this. We had a tiny sort of Mickey Mouse lab, no bigger than from where I am to where Donald is standing there. But it's really the power of the system. But again, we I said location, location, location. Now, if you get the recipe right, 
because it is just scientific cookery, you can make the right cell types. And it's, not, it's more Jamie Oliver than Heston Blumenthal. It's not that sophisticated. It is expensive, so maybe it's Heston Blumenthal in that sense, but it's not fancy. It really isn't. So here is work. Um, it's important to highlight, as I did at the beginning, pretty much everything I'm telling you about, as many other people, not me, doing it. Um, often I might have a role in leading it. And this work is collaborative with many people, but it's worth singing out two colleagues from Edinburgh, David Wiley and Giles Hardingham, absolutely key to a lot of work that I do and want to do. So, these are nerve cells from embryonic stem cells, which we made in a dish. This is the cell that's lost in Parkinson's. This is the cell that's lost in motor neuron disease. This is your insulating cell. These are all human cells. And then the nerve cells need to fire like those electrical nerves and networks that I told you about. I don't think David Wiley's here, which is great, because he might question me. But basically, they do. And, and they do it beautifully. Now, David wants a bit more detail, but we'll get that. But they do. Okay? And that's what this is showing. So it's amazing. So you can make unlimited numbers of these cell types, which are scalable, and they're functional. They're not karyotypically abnormal. So they're not like cancer lines. So I've told you about human embryonic stem cells, so, so let's just carry on with this idea of challenging received wisdom or dogma and go back to the idea of going backwards and here reversing specialization. So if this is the cycle of life, we started with the embryonic stem cell, which by definition is pluripotent. Pluripotent just means it can make all the cell types that make up the human body. And with time, I've told you that they get more and more specialized, nerve cells, liver cells, heart cells. But it's one-way traffic. It's unidirectional. So another Sherlock Holmes quote, the scientific use of the imagination. So there are some people who've got imagination. Sometimes they're scientists. Sometimes even richer, they're neurologists. Not often, but sometimes. And ask the question, well, can you go backwards? Can you reverse this? And the short answer is, you absolutely can. And the very first experiment that provided very, very strong evidence for this was done in 1962, and it's nuclear transfer. And so quite simply, that ring here is an egg cell, an egg, where the nucleus has been taken out, containing the genetic material. And into that has been transplanted the nucleus from an adult cell. This was all done in the frog. And then when they did that, one person did that, they made an embryo, they made a zygote, and then they made more of those cells, those master cells, and then they could make the whole organism. So from one, you can make many clones. That's not the actual picture of this study, but that's the best I could find today morning. Okay? Um, but nonetheless, uh, this would be, um, and females are double the size of males. So that's female and uh, identical clones, males, albinos. So that's the 1962, because it was such a stunning discovery, lots of people didn't accept it, thought there must be something dodgy or had other explanations, which is fine. And as it happens, and I learned this today in the mornings, but I think, and this isn't, a, I think this is true, the original study was Molly, okay, was the frog, what it was called Molly. Now this one makes sense. So you heard Molly, so how about Dolly, right? Now this isn't, this is all true. So then we go 35 years from 62, and Ian Wilmer and a colleague, Keith Campbell, Ian Wilmer, of course, here from Edinburgh, this was done in Roslyn, Edinburgh, Dolly the sheep, the same principle of experiment, 
did cloning, nuclear transfer of Dolly the sheep. And I don't know if people know why it's called Dolly the sheep. Do we know? Okay, no, some of you might know. So, again, this is true. The, the original cell, so in the frog, Molly, it was from a gut cell. Dolly was from the cell, the mammary glands, and it was named after Dolly Parton. <laughs> true. I thought you'd like that, Denise. <laughs> so we've gone from Molly to Dolly. But then, this other bloke, Shinya Yamanaka, short-circuited the whole game. He said, we can forget the nucleus, the egg, getting rid of the nucleus. It's all very fiddly in a transplant. Can you go from a specialized cell, a skin cell as it happened here, and using four factors of four genes, drop them in, and make this master stem cell? And the answer is absolutely you can, and he did. And in 2006 he did it first, but then he did it in a human context in 2007. So very, very young field. And for those of you who get told off by your seniors that you don't know what you're doing, that there's no hope, no future, change your tag, this is what the teacher of Sir John Gurdon said. Now the bloke who did that frog experiment is this guy. He, Sir John Gordon, and that was his teacher's comment. So he and Yamanaka last week got the Nobel Prize. Okay. So, you know, teachers do get it wrong sometimes. I, that's not what I tell my daughter, but they do sometimes. Okay. So I've told you now about the power of stem cells, embryonic stem cells, human, but also the principle here that using a very simple method from Yamanaka building on the discoveries of four decades earlier, the idea that you can make these master stem cells from anybody with those four factors. So what that now means is you can take patients with disease and you can generate master stem cells from them and then make the cells that are damaged in their disease to model disease in a dish. And the best diseases to start with are diseases that are inherited, which are diseases due to a dodgy gene, particularly a single gene. And there are neurological diseases like that, forms of motor neuron disease, for example. The classic one might be Huntington's disease. So a faulty gene leads to the disease. So you could take patients with the faulty gene, take a skin biopsy, straightforward procedure, that's what they look like, Insert those four factors which people talk about as a sort of Yamanaka cocktail. They're now master stem cell. I've told you with a bit of cookery, you can make the brain stem cell, a bit more cookery. You can then make the nerve cells that are lost, the particular nerve cells. So let's just say this is a patient with motor neuron disease. You might want to make motor nerve cells. So that's exactly what we did in collaboration with Ian Wilmot of Dolly the Sheep fame. And it's worth here acknowledging the Ewan McDonald Centre. I'll come back to that at the end. So this work is all done with and because of the Ewan McDonald Centre, which is a sort of virtual centre that has brought together a large grouping of researchers, both in Edinburgh, but external to Edinburgh, around motor neuron disease. But for the reasons I've told you, its impact will extend beyond that. So if you remember this slide at the beginning, this was the motor neuron disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. There were these two insects, which I didn't point out. Now, as it happens, the pathological signature of these diseases in motor neuron disease, they all have this, this stain, this blue marker. And what it, all that is, is just highlighting there's a, 
particular protein, it's got a name, it's called TDP43. But it, when this protein gets clumped and gets abnormally structured, it forms these clumps or aggregates, which is the pathological signature of motor neuron disease. 90% of patients with motor neuron disease will get these clumps. In Parkinson's, instead of that protein, it's a different one, it's called synuclein. In Alzheimer's, there's two other proteins called amyloid and tau. But this is the idea that many of these diseases, there's just five or six key proteins that are the pathological signature or hallmark of these diseases. That doesn't mean they cause it, but it's a pretty good clue that if you understand why they're clumping, you might be well on the way to understanding how you might do something about it. So that's TDP43. As it happens, there are patients who've got a faulty gene in TDP43 who go on to get inherited motor neuron disease. And one of the collaborators on this study, Chris Shaw, discovered that gene in 2007, again recent. And then he, with ourselves and Ian Wilmot, got those patients, got the fibroblasts, we made the programmed cells, made motor nerve cells, and asked the simple question, the motor nerve cells from the patient with the dodgy gene in TDP43, how do they compare to healthy motor nerve cells from patients who don't have the mutation? Yeah? And the details don't really matter here, but this is an example of that. So we've made the motor nerve cells, and using these different stains, you can stain for the TDP43, and it so happens that the, when you look under the microscope, in the patients, this gene and this protein is no longer in the nucleus, it moves out into the cytoplasm and it clumps, and you can measure that. And we found that in the cells in a dish, that was exactly what was happening. But more interestingly, perhaps, this is red line, blue line, this is a, a death axis, so the higher up you are on it, the worse it is. Basically, the message here is, the red line are the motor nerve cells from the patient with the mutation, dodgy gene, the blue is the healthy. You can see the red ones die more. So in other words, we are able to reproduce in a dish, using sort of stem cell based approaches, a key aspect of this disease. It clearly is not the same, but a key aspect, a key principle. So again, you might think that if you can do this reliably in a dish, can you then get drugs almost blinded and just screen hundreds of drugs, thousands even, to see will any drug shift that red line closer to the blue line? Even if you didn't know how that drug worked, if it did that, and if that drug was safe, it's worth a punt in patients. Does that make sense? So that is why people talk about the power of human stem cells to model a disease in a dish, but also as a brilliant drug discovery tool. Um, You'll be pleased I'm coming towards the end. So I've told you an awful lot about the sort of discovery end of the market, but in Edinburgh, as a community, there's a lot of investment in the regenerative neurology space that I've talk, spoken to you about. But it only means anything if we can deliver. I mean, the, I mean, I'm a practicing neurologist. The only point of doing research, from my perspective, is if this research might lead to work that will lead to an improvement in people's lives with disease. That's the only reason for doing it, anyway, in, in my view. So to do that, you need discovery, and we've talked about that, but you need delivery. And delivery is, is really in two sides. You need to understand patients and recognize that different patients have different time courses. No two patients are the same. So you need to be able to catalog, follow, study patients. But you also need the infrastructure to be able to trial therapies and to take calculated 
risks. It's called experimental medicine. So here's a very short three, I, uh, I think these are three slides, about a study that we did, I led, I don't, um, where we looked at bone marrow from humans contain a particular stem cell, and they're called mesenchymal stem cells. And these normally do three things. They make fat, bone, and cartilage. As it happened, and this is none of our research, others over the last 10, 15 years have found remarkably that these cells also do other things which in models of disease, including models of MS, were good, were helpful. It either slowed MS or stopped MS. Probably too good to be true, but going back to the Holmes business, it's worth testing it. Don't bring your bias. Can you test it? That's exactly what we did. And so um, this was this particular study. It's called, as you can see. Um, and the principle of the study is very simple. So I've told you that these diseases are steady and progressive, so people decline. So we were, all we were asking was, if that's the gradient in the year before you do anything, if you watch them, if you then do something, which is give them back these stem cells, can you shift that gradient? Can it go from that sharp to just that? If you could, that would be a good evidence, but not proof that this intervention may be helpful. You'd need to then do it with a placebo or sham arm to show that that didn't work, to show it. But this brings in another problem. So let's say that's the guiding principle, but how do you measure the slope? And how do you pick up a subtle but important effect? So they may not get out of the wheelchair because this treatment isn't good enough for that, but it might slow the trajectory. How do you measure that? Now in other organs, for example, the liver organ, you can measure things by blood tests, which are functional, but you can also take tissue out, you can take a biopsy and look at it under the microscope. And I've told you the pathology is the gold standard of research. Now clearly you can't take, not very easily, scoops of brain out whenever you want it just to check whether it is working. It's not going to happen. So the best way we can do that is using brain scans. But brain scans, though they're sophisticated, are still comparatively crude. So the other way is to use the eye almost literally as a window into the brain. And the eye is a part of the central nervous system. And so this is the idea of what we've called the sentinel approach. So we're using the optic nerve as a surrogate of wider brain disease in MS. MS is particularly challenging because unlike Parkinson's disease, the scene of the crime is across the entire city. In this case, the entire central nervous system. It's not just one point, so it's multifocal. And so we, we looked at the eye and we looked at measures of the eye. And the eye does three things, really. I mean, the key thing it does, which you can measure, is C, function measure acuity. But you can also measure the structure using scans and you can measure how fast nerve signals travel using a test that's available. So you'll see here, this is the eye test, which is a, a slightly, uh, up, it's not even upmarket, uh, just a version of, of your regular eye, eye test that you see um, in clinics or in boots. Actually, this will, you won't see some boots because it's so cheap. Um, they won't use it, but it does the trick. So look, these are the 10 different patients, but just concentrate on the red line, which is the average. So over the year or 20 months before the study, we were taking regular analysis of their eyesight, and you can see their eyesight was getting worse, so the red line's getting up. Then the dashed line here is the intervention, the cells, the stem cells given back to the patient, and the red line's going down. And statistically, that was important or significant. And then you can do the same principle, looking and measuring the eye 
the width of the eye, the nerve, the optic nerve, using x-rays or brain scans. And here again, it's the brain, the, the, that nerve is shrinking, it's going down. Here's the intervention, it goes up. So it is suggestive that this was doing something useful. But just to be very clear, I'm not saying that this is a treatment ready now. I'm simply using this to illustrate the principle of scientific study and how you might take an idea and ask whether it might be useful and is it safe. I haven't told you, but it is safe. Whether it's actually practically useful is premature because this was a very small study. You need to do this in a much larger numbers. In other centers, it needs to be reproduced. You need to do it against a sham. But the real principle that I wanted to emphasize because sometimes people will see these things, and I don't want to give people misplaced false hope, is that this is early experimental studies. It's interesting and no more. But nonetheless, it's, it's the window into the future. So talking about the future, this is my penultimate slide. Uh, as I've already mentioned, we've been very fortunate here in Edinburgh, in many ways, I have at least, um, and one of them was this donation um, from Joe Rowling, and this clinic has actually been built now and it will be operational later this year. And it does actually roughly look like that. Um, and that clinic, working with other activities, which I've told you about, such as the Ewan McDonald Centre, will hub a large range of clinical research around the principles that I've tried to explain tonight in this lecture. The final and most important slide is, uh, is really a thank you slide, is to thank many people. I can't thank everybody. I've tried to mention through the talk my collaborators, or some of them, but um, probably the two groups to single out are patients. Um, what's remarkable to me from patients who I see and others see is their willingness to participate in research. And the truth is, patients who participate in research today will not gain benefit for themselves. This is a form of selflessness because the research, sadly, takes time. And in some of the disease I've told you, that we don't have time. So it is the selfless nature of patients. The other thing is also how many patients and carers and friends of patients, the extent people will go to, to raise funds and to spread the message. And the amounts of things people do, jump out of planes, give collections from funerals, weddings, birthdays, for research. We've been very fortunate in that. And perhaps the best example of that is the Ewan McDonald Center. Some of you will know that. Some of the key people of that, in fact, are here. Um, it's worth pointing that out. It's a fantastic example of targeted philanthropy. And Ewan is uh, an individual um, who's behind this. He is, uh, and those of you know, is an inspiration. His vision and commitment is astonishing. So it's, it's terrific to be able to thank his father and sister who are here, but really to thank all of you for listening. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, uh, Siddharthan. Um, it's very important these days that uh, doctors and scientists explain their research to a wider audience, and uh, I think we've uh, seen an extremely good example of that today. Um, Einstein said that uh, if uh, you understood something properly, you should be able to explain it simply and straightforwardly to anybody. And uh, obviously, here is someone who does understand and is able to explain it, I hope, to everyone's satisfaction. 
Um, so thank you very much. This production is brought to you.